0: Well, thank you, choir, for sharing that beautiful song. And it's very appropriate to our uh, subject today as we are going to be studying the call of the disciple and and God's call on each of us. And the song very appropriately spoke of Jesus' call to each of us to come and to rest in him. So before we begin today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning asking that you would give me the strength to preach, give me the words to say. That I might build up these, your people, and that they might hear your call to come and to be a part of your kingdom if they are not a part of your kingdom now. And if they are, that they would recognize that they are here because of the call of God in their lives and the purpose of God to bring them into a a walking relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would bless us now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 52 through 71 as we begin a new series. And this is a series that I've been excited about for over a year now. I've been studying for it for about a year now to get ready to preach through the subject of discipleship. And if you remember, in fact, I I know most of you can remember back to my very first sermon here at Antioch West. I know you've got it, you saved the bulletin, you scrapbooked it, you you remember uh, every word, you've got it written in your Bible, the date and all that. But uh, even if you didn't, uh, for the few of you that don't remember, I I said that uh, in that first sermon I proposed a mission statement or a vision that any church should have. Uh, I mentioned then that I'm not a big fan of mission statements and vision statements and all of that, because, particularly, because for the church, every church has one mission and every church has one vision. And so I gave, as kind of this definition, of what a true church should be. And a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a body of baptized believers who delight in God by discipling one another and devoting themselves to His work. So you'll notice in that statement, there are three pillars. There is delight, there is discipleship, and there is devotion. And so in my first year in preaching here at Antioch West, I preached through a series on delight on how we delight in God by devoting our lives to worship that we are created by God to be worship beings we are created to live as image bearers which in and of itself means that we we reflect back the glory of God or we image forth the glory of God in the way that we live in the words that we say in our deeds and in, in our works All of those things are uh, an act of worship to the God that made us. And we won't know a true and beautiful and purposeful life. We can't, in a word, have delight in this life unless we devote our lives to to worshiping him. So, that's all good and we we've studied la- the first year i was here we studied how that works and what that looks like but you might wonder how do we learn to live a life of delight and worship well we do that through an approach that we find throughout the bible and throughout the ministry of jesus and throughout the early church we do that we learn to delight in god we learn to worship him Through discipleship. Now, that's a word that's thrown around a lot. In fact, if you go to LifeWay's website and you search discipleship, you're probably going to get a thousand results on books that you can study on discipleship. We talk a lot about discipleship. In fact, some of you, most of you probably grew up with discipleship training, right? At uh, at, uh, five o'clock on Sunday night or something like that. And you spend an hour every Sunday in, quote, discipleship. But it's evident to me that even though we talk a lot about discipleship, even though the Christian church and the American church is, is committed to discipleship, we don't have a very good track record of making disciples. You can tell that because Miss Laverne sent me a, a, an article this week about how the Christian church is... is dwindling and, and, and falling away in America and how, and the reasons for that and things like that. And we see it all around us. We see church membership dwindling. We see uh, the younger generations uh, failing to come up in the church and continue in the church. We see all of that happening. And it's evident that we aren't making disciples like we should. Yet making disciples is something that is essential to the life of the church. It's not an add-on. It's not a program we get the option to be in or out of. Jesus' last command to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 through 20 was to make disciples of all nations. So if this is an essential command of any church, then we need to understand it and we need to do it. So for the next year, we're going to talk about discipleship, what it is, What is, we're going to define it, and then we're going to look at illustrations of discipleship in the New Testament. So today, we start this series on discipleship by defining what discipleship is. And to define what discipleship is, we need to look at some of the Greek words that are used to refer to discipleship. And the first word is the word that we translate into disciple, and that is Mathetes, M A T H E T E S, in case you're taking notes. Now, if you search this word in the New Testament, you'll find that it is used over 225 times in the New Testament. We're not going to look at all 225 times, but there are seven ways, seven unique ways that this word is used that help us to understand what it's mean and what it means. So first, we're going to see today that a disciple is, first and foremost, chosen by God. A disciple is chosen by God. So to see that, let's read John chapter 6, verses 52 through 71 together. John chapter 6, verse 52, God's word says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some among you, some of you, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So, in looking at this passage, I want you to see three points this morning. First, I want you to see that the call to discipleship is open. The call to discipleship is offensive. And the call to discipleship is ordained. So first, I want you to understand that the call to discipleship is open. So John 6 is a very long chapter in the book of John, and it is long and winding. In fact, it has a great deal of Uh, Of content in it about Jesus's miracles and it seems to have when you read it it seems to have these two competing themes on the one hand we see the rise of Jesus in one way in his power and his apparent authority as he feeds 5,000 men with just a few loaves and fishes and he walks on water And you see that and you think, well, he is definitely the Messiah. He is definitely the Holy One of God. How can anyone deny it after something like that? And yet, on the other hand, even as he's doing all these powerful miracles, Jesus' influence, his uh, following dwindles to almost nothing. His following goes from over 5,000 at the beginning of the chapter to 11 at the end of the chapter, and both of those themes revolve around his miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and what he says about it in the teaching that follows it. So after performing this unbelievable, unbelievable miracle, a huge crowd begins to follow him and they, they seek him out. Jesus, remember, goes, across the, uh, goes up to a mountain and then he walks across the water to his disciples to avoid the crowd that is building around him. And even so, the crowd gets in boats and they walk around the Sea of Galilee to find him because they want to demand more food of Jesus. And instead of giving them more food, Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So in verse 52, those who are following him, the Jews, they take offense to this because it sounds like, quite literally, Jesus is saying that in order to be saved, you have to eat him. You have to eat of his flesh. So in response to this skepticism, you would think Jesus would say, no, no, no. Y'all don't understand what I mean. I'm speaking spiritually here. Let me explain. That's not what Jesus does. He says, oh, does that freak you out? Let me tell you something else. No, I said I was bred. Guess what? In order to live, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Right. Now, we're going to talk about exactly what Jesus means in that statement in just a little bit. But I want you to notice first two aspects of what Jesus says that point to the openness of God's call to discipleship. First, notice that the call of Jesus to discipleship is open to anyone who will take it. From verses 52 to 58, Jesus says the word whosoever four different times. So the call to discipleship is open to anyone. And I want you to hear me on this, friend. You might think, I've come to this church, I I, I barely feel like I ought to be here because I feel like... Christians are judgmental and they're always talking about doing good works and they're always talking about the law of God. And I know I'm not perfect. I'm not good enough for God. And so I don't know that I can even follow Jesus because of the burden of my sin and where I've come from. But I want you to understand that the call of discipleship is open to anyone who will take it. It is open to you regardless of where you come from. It is open to you regardless of your sins. Your sins do not disqualify you. Your socioeconomic standing cannot preclude you. Your race and your background cannot make you unacceptable in this kingdom. It is, the call is open to anyone who would follow Jesus. As Goodwill says in the Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian comes to the gate to enter the gate to eternal life, uh, to salvation, Goodwill opens the gate and he says we make no objections against any regardless of what they did before they came here. Right. Second, the call of Jesus to discipleship is open in its simplicity. Discipleship At its root is a call to set one's whole life on Jesus. Discipleship is a call to be wholly dependent on Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So like bread gives nourishment to the body so that the cells of the body can replicate and cause the body to grow and to repair and to build. So Jesus' presence in the life of the believer revives and empowers your soul. You see, having eternal life isn't just about knowing a few facts about Jesus. It's not about thinking good thoughts about Jesus. It's about you being in Jesus and Jesus being in you. It is about you finding your life and meaning and purpose and fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus enabling you by the presence of his spirit in your heart to live for him. It's not about you being good enough or walking pure enough or or following the right plan Or saying the right words, but it's about Jesus being your source and your reason for life. So, if the call is so open and the call is so simple, why do we find most of the people in this story walking away from it? And that brings me to my second point the call of discipleship is offensive. In verses 52 and 66 and 71, I want you to notice three offenses to the call of Jesus. First, in verse 52, notice the offense of the cheap trick. Here we find that the Jews take offense to Jesus' call to eat of his flesh. And these same Jews, and I want you to think about this, these same Jews had experienced the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the the previous day where Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish and he feeds 5,000 men along with their children and their wives with that meager offering. And they were so amazed that they crossed a sea to find him to ask for more bread. And not only that, they were willing to take Jesus even if it required by force to make him king and to start, in effect, a civil war and a war against the Roman Empire in order for him to be king over them. And they were willing to do all of this, not because they wanted Jesus, but because they wanted what he could give them. They wanted Jesus as their vending machine. They wanted Jesus to be a political puppet that would take out their enemies. But they didn't want to be dependent on him and to define their lives by him. And so, to call on him, uh, the call to feed on him was offensive because it would mean that they would have to give up control. It would mean that they would have to say, Uh, you know, Jesus, I have to be dependent on you all the time. I can't just come to you when I need something. I can't just ask for you to do something and then get mad at you when you don't. I have to be dependent on you even when things don't go my way, even when I don't get the healing that I've been praying for, even when my family situation doesn't work out. I have to be dependent on you at all times. And they were not willing to let Jesus have control. Second, in verse 66, we see the offense of costly grace. It says that there were even many of his disciples who fell away at this hard saying. Now, at the height of his ministry, it was likely that Jesus had around 120 people that followed him throughout his ministry, that followed him around everywhere he went. And I'm sure some of them had seen a great miracle that he had done. And they had said, well, man, if he can do this, I need to be where he is. Because if he can do this, then I need to be close to that power that he has. And no doubt there were some that heard him preach and heard him teach in the synagogues. And they said, man, he he's got such authority. I like him as a preacher. And so they had begun to follow him. But eat of his flesh? That was a bridge too far. Jesus' words, for one, they even say this, Jesus' words seem harsh and they seem illogical. And so they lacked the faith to trust that even if they didn't understand, Jesus was still enough. They wanted the benefits of the kingdom of God without the cost of it. They wanted to follow Jesus because he could again he could give them something and if they were close enough to him then they would benefit from it but when Jesus called them to trust in him unexplainably and without reservation it was a bridge too far. Right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century German pastor who opposed Hitler, called this version of God's or view of God's grace as Cheap grace, that people want Jesus as long as they're getting something from him. They want the ease of believing in him. But when times get hard, when it gets too hard to trust, they walk away. Over against this cheap grace, he taught that true discipleship is one of costly grace. He said this, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives man the only true life. Third, in verse 71, we see the offense of cynical unbelief. It's sad enough, but unsurprising that a large crowd would stop following Jesus because he stopped making bread. It's worse, though, that many of his followers had taken offense to what he said and dropped off. But worst of all is that even one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot, was really a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus tells his 12 in verse 70 that he knows that one of them is a devil. Now it's painful for anyone to think of the fact that Judas could follow Jesus for three and a half years, seeing all of his miracles, hearing all of his teaching, experiencing the most intimate moments with him, and then, at the very last, to betray. Him. This betrayal is so disturbing. Because no one could have known except for Jesus. Any of his disciples could have looked at Judas Iscariot and thought that he was just another committed follower. Perhaps even Judas Judas himself believed that he was committed. And yet at the end, he was not possessed by faith in Jesus Christ. He was possessed by Satan. The offensiveness of this call and the rejections that we've seen might cause us to wonder, well, who then will follow? How can anyone follow Jesus if even the ones closest to him are at risk of falling away? And the answer to that question is found in verses 65 and 70. And here we find my last point. The call of discipleship is ordained. In these verses, Jesus says two things to his disciples that reveal where true discipleship begins. First, in verse 65, Jesus answers the disbelieving disciples by saying, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus recognizes that many of these disciples are hanging up on what, they, what he said, because they don't understand what he's saying. And they try, uh, he, they're trying to understand spiritual truths from an earthly perspective. They tell Jesus, we don't want to hear this. It's too hard. We can't even listen to what you're saying. And Jesus answers with, well, that's fine. I've already told you that in order to understand what I'm saying... You need spiritual eyes. You're trying to understand spiritual truths from a worldly perspective. But to understand spiritual truths, you must be enabled by the Spirit. You must be awakened by God's Spirit to understand. Understand, brothers and sisters, friend, no one can come to God by his own understanding. You cannot figure God out. God is not a math problem or a logical argument. No one can come to God unless God first enables him to come. If this gospel of Jesus Christ is hitting you hard and you're thinking, preacher, this sounds crazy. How can you believe this? Then you're trying to understand spiritual truths with worldly eyes. God must awaken your heart and your mind to the truth of the gospel. You cannot come to God unless God first calls you. Right. Second, in verses 68 and 69, Jesus looks at His 12 disciples and He asks, Are you going to leave Me too? In response, Peter answers, We believe you have the words of life and you are the Holy One of God. Now at this point, you might say, aha, see, that's the difference. The crowd was unbelieving and the fair weather disciples, they were uncommitted, but Peter and the twelve, they're the good stuff. They're different. They really believe. But lest we think that the twelve are something special or that they've got it all figured out, notice Jesus' answer in verse 70. Did I not choose you, the twelve. Now, in the original language, this statement is emphatic. In other words, it's a corrective statement to Peter's answer. Like Peter has done time and again, he boldly gives an answer. And we think, boy, look at Peter. He's bold. He's out there. He's faithful. And then Jesus rebukes him. And this is one of those times. Because Jesus said, "I mean, Peter says, in effect, Lord, we're here because we believe. We get it. We're here because we understand. And Jesus corrects and He says, no, you're here because I chose you. Discipleship starts not with the disciple, but with God. You do not set out on this life of fellowship with Jesus by your own intuition your own wisdom, or your own gumption. You cannot come to God by your own power or your own ability. No, it is God who must first call you. It is Jesus who first chooses His disciples. Friend, to have eternal life, you must place your full dependence and hope in Jesus Christ. And perhaps today you've come to realize that that is the call of Jesus on your heart. You sense that Jesus is calling you to follow Him and to walk after Him and to live your life as though you are consuming Him and depending completely on Him to sustain you. Won't you turn in faith to Him today and confess your sins, confess your need for Him, and follow Him? Brothers and sisters, our walk with the Lord did not start because we were brighter than everyone else or because God saw something special in us or because we were different uh, than everyone else. Our walk began because God chose us and he called us. This means that we must live in dependence on him. We must eat of Jesus every day, which means we must trust him every day. We must repent of our sins and confess our need for him every day. We must set our hearts to follow him every day. May we leave this place ready to follow him because he calls us to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your calling in our lives. Lord, we all confess that without your work and your calling, we would be lost Like sheep without a shepherd. But we are thankful that the good shepherd has come and called us. And we, as your sheep, have responded and are following you as part of the flock of God. Lord, I pray that if there is a lost sheep here today who does not know you as their Savior, that they would hear the call of Jesus through your spirit and your word. And that they would come in response to that and repent and believe the gospel. Father, I pray that you would do your work now as we respond in song.